0: There's these pockets of queer communities across Kentucky where word of mouth spreads pretty fast of where can I get access to services that are going to meet my needs, I feel safe, they're good places to go. And many trans patients are victims of violence, so that's always something that we are talking to our patients about, making sure they feel safe. On Mondays, the nurse that I work with always has her her big rainbow shirt she wears when it's my clinic day because, you know, those are all the patients that are coming in. I would love to contribute to the body of evidence that nursing plays a key role in, in providing great care and eliminating these disparities that exist in this patient population. I would love to contribute in that way.
1: This is Rachel and Elise from Cornerstone Whole Healthcare Organization, and you're listening to the Life Support Podcast. The show that covers everything healthcare from behavioral health to substance use recovery and much more today we are talking to dr anthony carney about affirming appropriate lgbtq plus care practices in primary care and we really want to dive into what that looks like in a smaller care community We're excited to discuss everything about family care in the LGBTQ community and even what that looks like for the future generation of providers. So we're very excited and privileged to have Dr. Carney with us. He took time out of his busy teaching schedule, clinic schedule, and even out of uh, walking his dogs in that leaf season out east to join us for the conversation today. So we wanna thank you listeners for joining us and Dr. Carney. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. So today we have the wonderful opportunity to talk with Dr. Anthony Carney. And we'd just like to start here at Life Support with an introduction. So name, pronouns, where are you from? We like to ask you what you like to do when you're not working and then what you do professionally too.
0: Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you again after our time at the National Rural Health Conference. My name is Anthony Carney. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky in the College of Nursing. I am a doctorally prepared nurse practitioner in primary care and provide services for LGBTQ patients in a a small town outside of Lexington, Kentucky. I also do general primary care and I teach undergraduate nursing students in in LGBT health, general mentored nursing and other diversity related topics as well. I have a course that's the breadth of health equity. Outside of my professional life, I um, love spending time with my pets, my husband, staying at home, decompressing from work. I love to hike and get outside, especially when the weather's good. Our, in my area, there's wonderful nature reserves and Red River Gorge is a nice place to spend a weekend or, or a day out hiking. And so that I love to get outdoors if I can and out of the office.
1: Awesome. Almost leaf season too. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's going to be really crowded out there come October when all the leaves change. Yeah, It's going to be beautiful. <laughs>
1: Love it. Not the crowds, but love the leaves changing. And I guess I can't fault the other people for liking it, too. (laughs) Well, thanks again for chatting with us. And, you know, I think that we really just want to pick your brain a little bit about what it's like working in an LGBTQ plus affirming care practice in a small town. I think we get to hear a lot about experiences in other communities. But can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to practicing in a small town and specifically this type of practice?
0: Yeah, it started with... In, in my graduate work in a DNP program, a doctorate of nursing practice program, you select a project, a scholarly project to work on. And I was, uh, from the beginning, wanted to do something in LGBT health. And that kind of led me in the pathway where I was able to connect with providers who run a network of clinicians at our university who provide services for LGBT folks. So it's not like a housed clinic in a single location. It's a network of providers who provide for services. And I wanted to be part of that. So my training in the DNP program, when I went to like clinical rotations, I advocated to, can I be with this person? Can I be with this person so I could learn the skills and get the primary care experience, but in this specific. And also doing my own reading on guidelines and trying to just get my skills as best I can, any type of other education I could get, I would try to take advantage of. When I graduated, I lucked into an academic appointment with the College of Nursing. And as part of that, I get a clinical day at a clinic and our College of Nursing owns a small clinic. And this is the clinic that I work at now. So there was a need, this service was not being provided there, but it's still associated with the University of Kentucky, but it's outreach into a smaller community. And I thought this would be a great place for me to be in primary care. It works well with this academic appointment. And I can bring the skill set that I learned in my graduate program and got great mentorship from wonderful medical doctors who founded the the clinic and bring it here and start offering the service locally for folks in Wilmore, Kentucky. It is an all nurse practitioner clinic with a single nurse. We only have two exam rooms, very small, but now we offer general primary care, affirming care from, from myself and my colleagues are learning it a bit. And we have a psychiatric nurse practitioner and we collaborate a lot with our patients as well. So we're meeting a lot of the needs of the community recently with these new services we offer out in that small clinic.
2: So awesome. I think that journey just kind of shows that you can kind of follow your passion, the things you can learn, but then how you can really empower more people, you know, teach someone to fish. So it seems like you have such an awesome background and trajectory. Really wondering what affirming care means to you and how that kind of differs in a rural setting versus other settings?
0: Um, Affirming care, what I provide for primary care in, in my small clinic is addressing the unique needs of the specific patient population. And what you see both in anecdotally, my own personal experience, friends, family, and in the literature is many queer and trans patients have to educate their healthcare provider for their own unique needs. And this specific group has health disparities and health gaps. Across the board, mental health, physical health, screening, access as a result of you know social stigma, social determinants of health, access issues, fear of going through a provider. And affirming care is disrupting that fear, making the space a more welcoming environment and addressing those specific needs and making our clinic a safe space to get those specific needs met. For example, comprehensive sexual health screening where these patients can disclose sensitive information and not be judged for it or someone who may be trans and is seeking appropriate mental health care that it could address their unique needs and maybe they're seeking hormone therapy as a specific part of their care it's it's more about addressing those specific gaps in lgbt health in general and meeting those patients where they're at
1: I think that that's amazing just in terms of having access to services In a smaller community where I think traditionally you think about that being something that you get at, you know, a large academic health center in a city. And hopefully there's more of a movement to having access across geographies, across population density. But one of the things that I think about, particularly with rurality and living in a smaller community, is the intersection of like visibility safety and access. Can you talk about your experience as a provider and with your patients with that intersection?
0: Yes. So there are several patients that I see that come from rural counties of Kentucky where they don't feel safe in their community. And that's always part of our assessment in the clinic is advocating for our patient safety, doing assessments of their safety of what are their resources. And our goal at the very least is to you are safe in our clinic. And you know, we are there to support these patients. And I think what we've noticed too is there's these pockets of queer communities across Kentucky where word of mouth spreads pretty fast of where can I get access to services that are going to meet my needs. I feel safe. They're good places to go. And in that community and that communication among the community. It's a small queer community in the state, especially in the rural areas. So it's important that we put our best foot forward and provide the best quality care that we can and make these patients feel safe because word of mouth spreads fast and we start to see friends, we start to see partners and that is definitely our goal. I think beyond like normal advertising and hey, we have this service, I think word of mouth has been a really powerful way to get patients quality care in our area because of the care we provide. They tell their friends about it, they tell their partners about it.
2: That kind of makes me think of, you know, there's so much you can learn like in a book and obviously you've been to a lot of school and I see like before this we talked about you know being proud of having a doctorate and that's really important but you still told us that sometimes your patients just refer to you as Anthony kind of that personal connection maybe you can tell us a little bit about like what you don't learn in books what you wish you could tell kind of you know a cadre of professionals across the U.S. of the kind of work you do that you really don't learn in books you really have just learned through everyday work.
0: When I work with my queer and trans patients, you you learn about treating pathology and treating diseases and either medically or psychologically. But what you hear about are lots of stories and social determinants and, and safety are so important when you're working with LGBT clients. And, you know, for some patients that I have, just an example is many trans patients are victims of violence. So that's always something that we are talking to our patients about making sure they feel safe especially if they're accessing care and maybe pursuing hormone replacement therapy to to change body characteristics to align with their gender and there's been you know very unfortunate stories that you learn about where these patients may be victims of violence or maybe experienced poor clinical care as a result of their identity and this it just drives home to that Beyond just a simple, what are your medical problems? Like, to looking at the patient as a whole is so important for, for high quality care.
1: I so value that. And I hope that our listeners hear that, too, is, you know, this, no matter who you're treating, this really person-first approach and seeing what their needs are. My thought is, you know, you and I met when we went and talks to a group of rural health professionals and kind of this idea of how do you scale this to to other communities so that we can maximize access across the country. If you had to take top three things that practices can start doing to make it safer and easier to access affirming and appropriate care, what, what would be at the top of that list?
0: To me, I think I'm an example of you can make it happen. You know, it just, I think the, in many like rural primary care offices, there are wonderful physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs that are out there that have the capability to provide this care and maybe don't feel confident. But there's lots of training opportunities out there that are even online. You don't have to like Fenway Health, WPath, have lots of great resources to build your skill set to just go ahead and start offering that service on your own. I think that's a, seeking out additional training is is a great way to get this started so that because there's many providers that I've encountered where as soon as like LGBTQ topics come up, it's immediate referral to a specialty clinic that might have a wait list of six to eight months where affirming care needs may not be met. But with a little additional training and reading on your own, you can start to to get into this skill, I think.
2: I guess kind of going along those lines, what do you think is really missing? Like there's, there's so much progress that's been made but there's still so much room for improvement? Like which areas you feel like, oh, you know, without getting too much in the weeds, there's a lot of things we can't fix. But what things do you think we have some kind of control over that we can kind of keep working on, keep making progress towards?
0: Well, I mentioned as part of my role, I'm in academics as well. I teach nursing students in general, across the board in health education, medical education, nursing education, health sciences. Across the board, there's a gap in preparation of future providers to be able to provide uh, culturally humble care for LGBTQ individuals. So I think it starts there. I think that's an opportunity for putting more providers out into the workforce that are confident and ready to provide care for LGBTQ individuals. So I am a provider, but I'm also training future providers. And what I'm learning in my own practice and you know, from stories from patients, success and failures, I bring that to my students so that they can comfortably develop these skills in the classroom before they start seeing actual patients.
1: I think that that kind of echoes when we talk to other providers, you know, in the areas where we work, whether it's Idaho or Oregon, really the Pacific Northwest. I hear over and over again, there's a lot of challenges and barriers to care delivery and care access. But what really gives me hope is the next generation of healthcare providers. So those learners are engaged and they're really dedicated to providing those affirming and appropriate care services. So do you feel like this is becoming a little bit more mainstreamed in the healthcare education sector, or is this still something that people kind of have to take up on their own as educators and really make sure that they're advocating for in their
0: own teaching practice? I'm seeing more and more literature out there of this is something that our university or our school or our medical school has done. For example, things like just like elective courses in this topic or simulated patient experiences or uh, rotations with experts in the field. Uh, there's lots of things that are coming out. It's becoming more normalized, it, it seems, and it seems to be support in medical curriculum, nursing curriculums to, to do this. Because every piece of literature you read is we need more of this, we need more of this, and we need to start standardizing what is the best way to provide this content, how much content do we need in health education, and that hasn't yet to be decided. So I think folks that are interested, you know, that like folks like myself, where I have an interest in this and start doing some innovative teaching methods and see, bring some simulated patient experiences to your students and evaluate them, and share that and disseminate it so people in other programs can see what's working, what's not, and what's producing culturally uh, competent providers out there that can provide this type of care.
1: I'm excited to hear that, that. that There's that movement towards progress. Do you think that in places, whether it's you know organizations, localities, that sort of thing, that are putting up barriers or limits to care, are they at risk of losing healthcare workforce? Do you right. think just in terms of who you're seeing come out of different academic programs?
0: I think providers want to practice in the the scope in which they were trained and provide great care to all of their patients. And when there are barriers like restricting services for for like youth or trans folks and and those kind of things, I think that it, if that's part of your landscape in your area of practice, I think those areas are huge areas of need, especially rural areas. And unfortunately, what you may see is, is providers leaving those areas to be able to practice in their full scope and provide the care that they want to provide. So those barriers for access to care for LGBT individuals, not only is it harm patients, but it, I think it reduces a lot of talented and passionate providers in those areas to go to places where they can practice and can provide the care that they're passionate about.
2: Kind of thinking about this this next generation and how you do things differently, I guess I'm so intrigued kind of with your comments that, you know, things might be a little bit different for the queer communities in Kentucky. It makes me think of one of my good friends who identifies as non-binary. They're trying to start a family and in a really urban Northern California area. But IVF clinics have shown to be like a really huge barrier and really unfriendly in some cases. And all of their friends kind of had similar experiences with certain places. I know Rachel had a conversation with Dr. Reagan out of Idaho, kind of talking about how you make, you know, actual physical buildings more friendly and um, how you might present yourself. But what are your experiences making places truly friendly? So, you know, from physical spaces to maybe you could give us an example, like how you introduce yourself, things like that.
0: Yeah, this is this is huge for affirming care is creating an atmosphere of welcoming and safety. And a lot of it is nonverbal signals, but also how you talk to someone as well. Like you can see by, me, have a pride flag. I have a pride pl- pin, I have a pronoun pin that I wear in the room. It's just signals of, oh, this is a safe person to talk to. I always introduce any new interactions with my patients who have, don't know me yet. My name is Anthony, please call me Anthony. I use he, him pronouns. How about yourself? And, I, and some patients, will, you know, introduce themselves to use pronouns. Some will not. It depends on the comfort level of the patient. But it opens up that opportunity for disclosures and shows that I'm, you know, a safe person to talk to. Some other things we've done in our clinic, you know, we did a needs assessment in our clinic and our wonderful staff verbalized, they're like, we're so excited that this service is coming now that you're at our clinic, but we don't really know much about it. So we, I partnered with my students who have an interest as well. We designed a training for intake of patients and just general affirming interactions with our patients that went quite nicely our, our providers were very receptive to that so all of our providers and our ancillary staff or nursing staff have gotten training how to interact with lgbt individuals asking things like pronouns we have intake forms uh, that are have generational terminology for example we have non discrimination policies from the university that we post and are visible and it includes sexual orientation, gender identity on there. And it's very important that that's visible. Not a lot of people read them, but our queer and trans folks that come in, they are reading those things to see, am I safe in this place? We have little booklets here and there about, you know, like safe sex health, but it's got queer and trans people on the cover people of color on the cover. So everybody is represented and you see lots of different things beyond just things for cisgender heterosexual folks, which we do serve at our clinic as well. That's the majority of who comes to our clinic. We have a gender neutral bathroom, things like that To Those are some strategies we've, we've implemented too. Also when I'm in clinic, I'm in clinic once, once a week. On Mondays, the nurse that I work with always has her, her big rainbow shirt she wears when it's my clinic day because, you know, those are all the patients that are coming in and they, lo- they love seeing Christie Argers.
2: That's so awesome in a way to kind of incorporate personality. I feel like sometimes maybe in the medical world, we get so like formalized with things like this is the way to do it. This is your formal diagnosis. Well, let's talk about, you know, codes and EHRs. Well, really, a lot of bits, you know, how can you be a good advocate and how can you really relate to someone? So I think that's so awesome. Some great ideas for how this can kind of be incorporated and in how you do it. I guess like looking forward, like, you know, if you had a magic wand, like what do you think that this would look like in 10, 20 years? What kind of work do you hope to be doing or how do you hope that, you know, work and what you're doing kind of transforms?
0: I'm hoping we are able to expand the amount of providers who want to dedicate work in this space. We're called Transform Health at the University of Kentucky. It's a network of providers, I mentioned. I want to see, you know, a bigger team that continues to grow people who are excited in their medical education or nursing education programs that know that we're out there and it draws really talented and passionate providers to work at our university because we have the service that exists. And with more talented, passionate folks, there's less access barriers for our patients as well. And as a nurse practitioner in this space, I want to contribute to the body of literature as to how nursing makes an impact in this space. And I don't know how that looks yet, I'm just doing my best to provide good primary care right now, but I would love to contribute to the body of evidence that nursing plays a key role in, in providing great care and eliminating these disparities that exist in this patient population. I would love to contribute in that way.
1: Well, I think step four in that process is be a life support interviewee um, on a podcast. So I, I think you're well on track. No, I just really value that vision and the action behind it at the individual patient care level, at the systems level, and then at the education and workforce development level. I just want to thank you for the work that you do and the time that you're taking to share with us. So thank you so much. And hopefully we get a chance to talk with you again.
0: Awesome. Thank you all for having me. This is my favorite thing to talk (laughs) about. So any form, I loved it. Thank you so much for the invitation.
2: And that wraps up another great episode of Life Support. Thanks again to Dr. Anthony Carney for speaking with us. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to help us spread information like this to more people, you can like, comment, and share this video. If you don't want to miss out on more episodes like this, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can leave a comment with any ideas for future topics or, you know, tell one of us to stop talking or keep talking more. Until next time, remember to help each other with a little life support.